0: to the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Summers, a licensed therapist and birth trauma survivor. This is a space where we talk about what it means to experience trauma during a time that we expect it to be one of the best of our lives. The stuff is dark and it's messy, but we're here to shine a light on it. We're here to hold your hand as you walk through the darkness. We're here to show you that the light exists and we're going to help you find it. So wherever you are, take a deep breath, settle in and let's do this. Welcome back to the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. On today's episode, we are welcoming one of my all-time favorite creators and nurses in this space, the lovely Jen Hamilton. Gosh, what an honor it is to get to sit down and talk with Jen about all things L&D nursing and birth trauma. Jen is changing the culture of L&D nursing and in the process, absolutely without a doubt changing the lives of patients like you and me. I am forever grateful for the work that Jen does and the way she chooses to educate in the social media space. She has literally taken hundreds, probably thousands at this point, (laughs) of videos on TikTok and turned them into educational opportunities for patients and nurses alike. So I hope you'll join us for this, of course, informative, but also quite entertaining conversation with our resident chicken swaddler. Hey, Jen, welcome to the Birth Trauma Mama podcast. Hi, Kaylee. I'm so excited to be here. I am fangirling very hard right now. We were just, Whoa, yes, we, are buddies. I know, we were just talking about our wonderful parasocial relationships before we got on and it felt like. We we do know each other. I was like, Oh, I'm I'm gonna get on the podcast with Jen. And then I was like, I've never actually met Jen before though.
1: Yeah. So our first words ever exchanged were here, even though we've known each other for like oh a year or two. Like yeah. I know so much about you. I hope you know such about so much about me. And so now much. we we get to be real life friends, kind of. <laughs> kind
0: of. At least virtually. I mean I yeah. know so much about your chickens and yes. swaddling. Yes. Yes, so exciting. So I want, obviously, you do such a great job talking about all things L and D and birth trauma in such a balanced way. Um, but I, I want to start with like how you got there. How did you end up as an L and D nurse?
1: Yeah. Well, this life? first of all, if you would have told me in nursing school that this would be my life, I would def- definitely disagree with you, uh, because in nursing school, all I remembered was how wet. my labor and delivery experience was as a student. Um, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I started my nursing journey in the emergency department. I was there for six years and the last year that I was there, I was in management and I hated management with every fiber of my being. (laughs) I did not like it at all. Um, a lot of stress and not a lot of, um, not a lot of fun times. So there, I had a really traumatic night one night in the ER. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, I feel my compassion, like as a human being being sucked out of me. So I went on the jobs page for where I work and just looking for literally anything else. And I saw a position and it was the schedule, honestly, that, that drew me into like, well, maybe I could try this. It was a weekend option. A schedule so basically just working weekends and I was like hmm, two days a week sounds great so I sent in an email to their director and was like hey can I like come shadow or whatever and the vibes when I got there was just so different like everyone just was so excited to be there and you know nobody was calling me the bitch you know like because I you know, in the emergency department, if you are, uh, you know, people, nobody's happy to come. No one's happy. No No one one is happy. I got called bad words all the time. It didn't matter what you were doing. If you weren't giving somebody the right pain medicine, if they were having to wait a long time, like you're never giving anybody good news from the ER. So, uh, yeah. So there was way less of that. And I found myself falling in love with just being with people during this time in their life, you know, like, yeah, it was, it was great to be with people in the emergency department during times where they really needed, you know, support and comfort, but this was a different type of, of support and comfort that you're providing somebody. And what a special honor that it is to be with someone during that time. So, you know, most of the time it's a happy time, but there are times where it's not a happy time and um i think it's equally as important that i'm there for those people also so um yeah it was kind of like a slow burn into this passion that i have now of um of preventing birth trauma and um spreading the awareness that birth trauma doesn't always have to mean like what happened to you you know like yeah. it doesn't have to be this huge traumatic experience where anyone on the outside could look at it and say oh my gosh i can't believe that happened to you but it can also mean like nobody listened to me or i felt yeah. like i had no control over my body you know like all of those things can cause birth trauma so my passion is preventing that like that yeah. part of you know how can we better communicate compassion how much how much better could we be empathetic and thorough communicators with people so yeah i am so grateful for where I am now and being able to be in this space with people.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I remember one of your first videos that I shared was you like um, acting out talking to a patient for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the reason it caught my attention was because it was based off of a comment of someone saying, I'm pregnant and I'm terrified I'm going to have an AFE.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and you responded with like how you would approach working with a patient, collaborating with a patient, supporting a patient, um, that was nervous. And that is, I think it may have been, that may have been, it was a, it was an older video. So that may have been the first time that you used your phrase or the first time it got popular, which what is, what is your phrase? Cause I love it. It's my favorite the phrase
1: <laughs> is it's okay to be scared because I'm not, um, And I think that when you come into a space where you're not there all the time, like I, I tell patients all the time, it would be weird if you weren't scared, you know, like that would be strange. So I live here, work here, know all the good restaurants, know the places to avoid, which is what I tell people. It's kind of like living in a city that you're not familiar with, um, versus, or like being in a city that you're not familiar with versus being with a person who is very familiar with their surroundings. Um, kind of like having a tour guide. So I'm not afraid, you know, like there, there are moments sure where it gets a little dicey. Um, but you have someone there with you who knows what to do and that can be comforting in and of itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know you do such a great job explaining this to other, like one of, one of your big platforms is going out and speaking to, um, people who work in labor and delivery, and you and I have a crossover in this. I messaged you the other day, and I was like, "Hey, can I use your quote when I talk to these nurses about blah 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 Yay, blah because it's my yeah. favorite." Yes. Um, and so, I'm curious about, like, what do you tell nurses? Like, what what are some of the most important things that you want to communicate to nurses about preventing birth trauma?
1: So when I go speak, I think that there's a couple of things that I want them to leave having deeply understood. The first is that we can cause birth trauma just in the way that we interact. Because when a nurse or someone who works in healthcare hears that, we don't want that to stick to us. Like, no, uh Like I, yeah. it, it's easy to be very defensive of hearing that. Like I can cause birth trauma. Nuh-uh. Like I'm here to help you, you know? Yeah. So we've got to take down that wall of defensiveness and accept accountability for where we uh, can participate in birth trauma. Um, and then the second is that there's, there are six things that I want us to promise our patients and then to keep those promises. Um, So I have a whole presentation where I go through, and these are the promises that I tell literally every single patient that I have. Um, And you can ask anybody that I work with. It's every patient, whether I'm, Uh, Just admitting you and you're about to get passed off to a different patient, or whether we're going to be together the whole time. I say this to every single person. So, the first is that I'm here to be your advocate. And that can mean different things for different people. But for me, what it means is whether or not I agree, I am going to advocate for what it is that you want. Um, I'm here to give you like all the information that you need, but I'm going to advocate for your empowered, informed decisions, you know? Um, The second is that I promise to believe you and I promise to um, listen to you. And then I've got, um, I promise to explain things to you so that you can make decisions that you feel good about. I promise to protect your bodily and your decision-making autonomy. And then I also promise to never keep secrets from you. Um, I think that that one is very important because um I could al- always see somebody wanting to prevent trauma in somebody by holding things back, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I see that the baby looks really bad on the monitor. Everything's fine. everything's good. you know, And just because we don't want to scare people, yeah, and I could I can see that that could be uh, something that people, in, in like them trying to be kind.
0: They yeah, it's not be. malicious. Exactly.
1: Yeah. However, if whatever you're concerned about becomes a reality, we have missed so many opportunities to prepare our yeah. patient for what is on the horizon. So that's one that I really think is important to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think... In, in terms of the defensiveness, which I totally understand, like we, we joined this profession to be helpful. And you're telling me that I have, you know, one in three people are perceiving their birth as traumatic. So there's a likelihood that unfortunately those involved in their care are causing or exacerbating that trauma. And I think something that I say to nurses that I talk to a lot is that what I think a lot of them don't understand is that when I see clients and when I talk to people in my community, they will tell me the most horrific story that happened to them. And then they will say, but there was that one nurse and she held my hand. She washed my hair. She just name whatever compassionate, beautiful, connecting words or activities this person, like they remember that. Mm-hmm in such a powerful way. And so we already know that your care and the way that you interact with your patients has such a massive impact. And the only thing that I am trying to do, and I think probably you are trying to do, is like help continue to make that impact a positive one. Um, And in ways that like we don't realize could potentially be um, negatively impacting people. And something that I also talk about a lot is that like, and I think I've heard you talk about this too, like we can't be perfect. You're going to screw it up. As a nurse, you're going to miss the mark. You're going to not realize that something you said maybe didn't go over well. But if you have the insight to recognize that, to see that your patient maybe like was like, oh, there was a, there was a recoil reaction to something that you said or did being able to recognize that and check in with your patient and say like, I feel like that didn't land. I feel like we yeah. we didn't vibe. And that was totally on me. Like, can we, can we start this over? Can we, yeah. you know, whatever it is.
1: And debriefing those, those moments, you oh, know? Yes, And I think that's something that I particularly see a lot, especially on social media is I'll get tagged in videos where someone is going over their very traumatic birth. And as I'm listening to it, I'm waiting for, the thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I had an emergency C section or I had a pro- cord prolapse. But what I'm hearing is a very normal birth course that was not explained well or at all. So, you know, I saw one where uh, their water broke or they had their water broken. And after that, the pain got exponentially worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and to them, they perceive that as something is wrong, yeah. where I know that, you know, the hormones that are released from water breaking makes it so much worse. But if you're not expecting that, anticipating it or having it debrief with you in the moment, you can leave that moment saying something was wrong and no one heard what I was saying. You know, so I think that us explaining things to people, even if it makes total sense to us in the birth space, like we see it all the time. So of course it's whatever way that it is not everybody comes in knowing those things so we have to be able to express those those interactions that we have in birth we have to be able to um, explain them in a way that makes sense to people in order to help them narrate their birth you know like because yes if you're if you're reading a story you know you have the narrator who can give you more perspective you know uh, you can have first person uh, knowledge of what's going on, which is very valid, but also from a narrator perspective, if you're reading a story or listening to on an audio audiobook, the narrator can give you perspectives from different places to help you fully encompass what is happening. So I kind of see that as my role as a nurse is giving you that more information to help you process it in the moment, because we can we can begin to process birth trauma the moments that it ha- that it's happening. We can even process birth trauma before it happens. So I want to give my patients the uh, tools in their toolbox to be able to process the trauma that may happen, process the trauma that is happening and process the trauma that has happened. Yes.
0: Yeah. I love that. I think it's, It's such an important skill to have. And I love the idea of the narrator of that situation because um,
1: I do, I think it changes outcomes and yeah. And I, I don't want to tell someone how they should experience something, but all I want to do is give them different perspectives on what is happening so that they can process it as it's happening.
0: Well, it, of course, it feels very unsafe to think that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you have someone being able to offer you reassurance of like validation of this really freaking hurts right now, and it probably got really intense because your water's just ruptured, that is a normal process. But I know it feels probably a little scary right now and a lot of pain we are here. Here are the things that we're going to do to help you with that pain. Here are your options for pain management. And
1: if you're going through that and you're not seeing your nurse being receptive to what you're feeling and they're kind of poo-pooing it off because to us, it's so normal. Like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're used to seeing people experiencing this level of pain every day, but if you're there, experience that pain and you don't see somebody who's like, oh my gosh, like let me help you. What is going on? That can be traumatic. Cause that feels yes. like you're not hearing what I'm saying. I'm telling you that something is wrong because I am hurting really bad. Yeah. Um, so I think that just like you said, validating what they are feeling is so important.
0: Yeah. I remember obviously this is, this is, I want to be very clear. This is not a knock on my nurse who was not able to do anything in this very short amount of time, but just the experience of, Knowing, and I actually thankfully don't remember this, but it creeps me out to consider the experience of knowing I was dying and shouting about it and not having anyone else like understand for, of course, like there's, there is no way to understand that in the course of 20 seconds. But from those moments of saying something was really wrong and my nurse like doing all the things, it was transition. So she's going to get me back to be sick in and like looking at the monitors and checking on everything. That 30 seconds, 20 seconds of my life was probably very incredibly terrifying and lonely. And even though I don't remember that, obviously we know from trauma it gets stored in your body. Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: having that support, having someone when they're able to be able to be like, I'm on. And it starts from the, this is what I talk about. I get so passionate about this. So I go all (laughs) over the place. But like exactly like you said in the beginning, like this is why we set up these relationships with patients like this though, right? Like from the very start, you're already saying like, we're in this together. Here are my promises to you. Like that groundwork sets the stage for the rest of that relationship while they're literally having the most vulnerable experience of their life. And that is what makes it so i think um vulnerable for to use the word again for trauma is because it is the most one of the most vulnerable experiences of our lives yeah. and i think that is really where nurses and providers come in and think like i'm not doing anything wrong like I'm being neutral, but my argument to that always, if you look at like the CDC report that came out for mistreatment, one of the biggest things is people felt like they couldn't ask questions,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it is like the job of the medical team to make a patient feel comfortable enough to be able to ask those questions. Like there's a reason they feel like they can't. One, we're socialized as beings especially as females, to be like the good patient, to be people pleasers. And so I feel like we have to overcorrect. And I think sometimes medical providers don't recognize that or realize that overcorrection that needs to happen.
1: Exactly. And one change that I've made in my practice is instead of asking someone, do you have any questions? Rephrasing that to what questions do you have? Instead Instead of, you know, because just like you said, we're people pleasers like, do you have any questions? Like it's easy to say no. When yep. if you rephrase that to what questions do you have? I've had patients kind of pause and think, like, okay, what questions do I have? Because it's so easy to be like, no, I'm fine. You know, but if I'm telling you, I expect you to have questions, that makes a big difference. And I think that just like you said, how that communication begins immediately. Um, I was in a delivery yesterday. So I, at the desk where we sit, there's these, all these monitors and we can see every single baby and whatever they're doing in that moment. So I sit at the desk and I look up and I see a baby that has been down for like eight minutes. And I know that there's people in there, but you know, they may need some help. I don't know what's happening in there. Um, and I walk in and it's a patient who's pushing. Well, first of all, in any situation where you're coming in, in that, where there's like a lot of stuff going on, it's very easy to come in and kind of just be part of, part of whatever's happening. Yeah. I always come in and introduce myself. I don't care how crazy it is. I tell people, if I'm seeing your biscuit, you need to know who I am. Yeah. So I came in and even though the, the room was kind of wild, I said, my name is Jen. If I'm seeing your situation, you need to know who I am. Um, and She had been pushing and this was somebody that I found out later had, had gone in with very, uh, high expectations, birth plan wise of like water birth. Right. Mm -hmm. And here we are like, not that at all. Like thing, I knew that things had happened that kind of veered her off the course. Right. So she was pushing and her baby had been down. Right. So we're calling the NICU to the delivery. Like there's a bunch of people in there and then comes the conversation of we need to vacuum your baby out because your baby's heart rate is so low and it's staying low. Yeah. Um, so then she was having to make that scary decision. And after I got the warmer set up to accept the baby for NICU stuff, like I had to set up all of our resuscitative equipment, I came over to the bed and I put my hand on her head and I, um, I was like, Hey, I'm going to help talk you through these things that are happening. Cause I know that this is very scary. And um, the, the fellow doctor we have different levels of doctors and there were a few doctors in there, but, um, had put on a vacuum after having the conversation with her, put on a vacuum, try to pull. the baby was not coming. And the baby's heart rate is going lower and lower. And then the attending doctor comes up and he's trying to, and he's trying to pull with all his might cannot get this baby out. What was holding the baby up was this tight band of tissue. And we do not do episiotomies hardly ever. I can probably count on one hand in a finger or something, how many I've seen in my whole career. But there are times where episiotomies can be like life saving because we have to be able to help this baby. Um, and so the doctor said, I need to do an episiotomy. And she said, no, no, no. Like I, I don't want that at all. And so I, he, I, he had the scissors and he was about to, I said, stop. And so not that he would have done it without her consent, but I wanted everyone to hear that she said no. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so I had my hand on her head. I said, we don't do these unless something is, high. I said, your baby's heart rate has been down for so long. This is a very important. And I would not tell you that if I did not think it was important. Um, and so she had to make a very traumatic decision in that moment. And so I kind of had my hand up towards him, like, don't do anything until she says, Um, And I said, I need, I need you to make that decision, whether that's okay or not. And she ultimately consented, but I know that her having to go through that moment of making a very scary decision within seconds that she did not want to do was very traumatic for her. So even though that wasn't my patient, I came back later and debriefed with her like, Hey, how are you doing? Let's talk about what happened. Do you understand what happened? Um, what questions do you have about what happened? Um, because I wanted her to be able to talk about those things before she goes home to do it on her own, you yeah. know, because she's going to always look back on this. You know, I know that she's going to have grief because her plan did not go the way that she wanted it to. Um, but, you know, she made she made good decisions in the moment that ultimately led to her baby being okay but that doesn't mean that she is emotionally okay leaving that situation so even if i'm in a scary situation i always want people to understand this is another thing that i talk to nurses about is that we have to prioritize communication even in emergencies so like even in your situation you know you're like i'm dying i'm dying i would want someone in that moment to be talking to you. And yes, we have to do all the things, but you even said yourself, like that was a very lonely experience. So I want nurses to know that even if stuff's going crazy, we still have to prioritize communication. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And I always add to that, that like, Sometimes, like I always give my case as like the rarest of examples, because you always say, which I love, you're like, you always have 20, you always have 30 seconds, you always have Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And I even, we even go as low as like 10 seconds to like put your arm on someone as the gurney is, like you said, on two wheels down the hallway, Mm -hmm. like we can say words. And I always talk about like breaking the bubble um, of like, I hear so many clients who talk about this bubble where it felt like chaos was happening around them and no one entered their bubble to they may have been saying things to them, but you always talk about specifically about touching the patient mm-hmm. appropriately, um, just laying your hand <laughs> on their shoulder, not just yeah. like touching, like laying their your hand on their arm just to get in their eye contact and have mm-hmm. that touch point so that you do break that bubble and that yeah. they are engaged in listening to you so that they feel comforted and The part I always add to this is there may be a situation such as mine where like there was maybe 20 seconds and that 20 seconds was like hitting the code blue button and running to the hall and whatever it was because there was only one nurse in the room at the time. But the after piece, which you've already discussed, the debrief, the way that my team communicated with me after my event occurred and the things that were done with my son on my chest while i was on ecmo like all of these things mitigated trauma for me was i traumatized i don't know how you avoid trauma in that situation (laughs) like there's there's not a whole lot of ways to avoid trauma but i always really want nurses to take home even in those situations it's not like a lost cause i had such an easier it's a weird word to use. Time recovering from my trauma because of the way that my team interacted with me around what happened. Sure. Um, and so I talk about preventing trauma, but there's also that mitigation aspect too. The trauma occurs, like you said, we're we're processing it right away. People are are talking about it. We're we're giving autonomy back to the patient once they're able to to speak for themselves. Because I think that's a piece that often <clears throat> gets missed in. Critical care um, obstetrics is I had a lot of things done to my body without my consent. And people will be like, well, technically you did get. I'm like, yeah, no, I get it. I wanted it to happen. I am only here because all of the things happened. I would say yes, 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 over and over again. But the fact remains that I wasn't alive for part of that. I wasn't conscious for part of that. And so you wake up to a world where all of these surgeries happened to your body, all of these very invasive things happened. And um, you kind of just have to deal with it. And so when that patient wakes up, being able to give back autonomy for decision making and things Mm -hmm. that happen and and letting them know what has happened to them without sugarcoating it, which is a big issue that we have in critical care OB in the ICU, is that people will either um, have sedated patients, which is not sleep, and they will not communicate with them. Mm -hmm. And then those patients will make up stories. The crazy, the craziest stories have come out because we like, I didn't know I had my baby. Wow. So when I woke up, I thought I had retrograde amnesia, like 10 full days of mist. And so when I woke up, weirdly, it was just my mom in the room. My husband, I don't know, was either visiting the baby or somewhere else. And so she showed me a picture of my baby who had, like, the leads on him from the NICU. And my brain said that we all died – or they all died in a car accident.
1: Oh, no. why else
0: would I be in an – why else would I be yeah. in an ICU setting? All of the yeah. hospital shows I've ever watched are, like, you got into a terrible car yeah. accident. Yeah, And so I thought they were both dead. And so then they had to, like, bring them in and be like, everything's, you know, whatever. That's traumatic. Um, yeah, oh, right? <laughs> And so there are much there are many, I was only down for like, I was under under sedation for like four or five days, but there are AV survivors who have had much longer induced coma sedations that have crazy intricate stories that their brain has made up that are not true and lead to that icu psychosis so anyway just my point being that often we really struggle in an icu setting dealing with postpartum patients because those two worlds are not
1: not the same
0: in terms of treatment
1: oh yeah and like in nursing it's a wonderful thing but it's also a terrible thing that we all have our own specialties and rarely do they cross over right so I had a patient who um, I was in, I was acting as the rapid response OB nurse for that day, right? So any patient in that community that was either at this hospital or another hospital, I would get called for those emergencies um, and either have to go or remotely assess. It's just a way that if there's a hospital that doesn't have OB, that they have someone who can kind of help do some liaison stuff yeah so i got a call about like a 30 something week uh mom who had had a seizure and um she had thrown up aspirated and was coming in right wonderfully baby looked great okay but things happened that ended up us having to have an emergency c-section um but also she got put on ecmo and was intimate like it was Bad. It was the worst, um, critical care. Like she was sick. Um, I did not know if she was going to make it, but it was a wonderful, but also scary thing. How like, I don't have this whole, yes, I worked in the ED, which is very helpful for me, but I don't have like the ECMO critical care stuff in my brain. I mean,
0: not ton of people do. It's not even available at a a wide variety of hospitals. So
1: And then, you know, I have a lot of the OB stuff and I feel very comfortable in the OB land. So, yeah, we have these two different worlds that rarely collide and when they do, it can be scary for both sides the critical care in the OB world because it's like I don't know what I don't know. They don't know what they don't know, but together we can take good care of patients. But um, you know, having to come over to the to the critical care side and do some of the OB stuff. There's stuff that's very basic to us that they have no idea about and same for them to us. Yes. So um when you have something like what happened to you, you have these two worlds that have to collide when they very rarely do. So I know that your experience is um, one that I guarantee you every single person involved in your care, that's a story that they have in their brain of like, I will never forget that. Yes.
0: Yes. But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's its not everyone's training, which I do think it, what was so cool about my case is that like my CTICU nurses, first of all, my God, do they know so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the fact that they fought professionally and nicely with my husband, um, yeah. that my baby was going to come in to the ICU and be put on my chest when my yeah. husband was like, but the baby be 11 pounds and you guys told me that she's critically ill. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, yes, and actually this could probably help her. Yeah. Um, but I love yeah.
1: that they did that. I love that. And
0: a lot of those things did mitigate a lot of trauma that I experienced. And so I just think there are creative ways. I know there are a lot of policies and protocols, but. If there are people listening, the other thing that I talk a lot about, and by people, I mean like people who are in the hospital world, take pictures and videos Mm -hmm. if your loved one is in critical care after they've given birth. My family took thousands of videos and pictures. And even with that, I'm like, well, where's the time that this happened? Why isn't that recorded? (laughs) But the people who come out without pictures, because I understand their family was like, Terrified, they were worried. They didn't know if they'd want the pictures. My argument is they can always be deleted. You Mm -hmm. can always tell them that they exist in in some random album that they maybe don't need to see or don't want to see right away. But I will say, more often than not, we become obsessed with what happened when we weren't there. Um, And so having those pictures and videos, especially like my first time meeting my son, I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I always highly recommend that.
1: Yeah, and I think that just like how it was important for you to, and it's very uh against what we would think to, you know, to want to take pictures in that moment. Um, in the same way, it's also kind of against what you would normally think about taking pictures when a baby has passed, yes. um, that same kind of traumatic experience. It's not where, it's not something that you would ever be like, everybody smile, let's take a picture, you no. know, but I have patients that, you know, I offer to take photos when their baby has passed and they're like, why like you know but I say this is something that I want you to have the option of looking back on Um, and you may never open these photos and that is okay but I don't want to take that option away from you Um, and a lot of times once people kind of process that thought they are very agreeable to it like okay yeah I could see how that You know, I just, I want everyone to have all of the options available to them at any moment. I never want to take away options. And so um, I think that taking photos in times where you think this doesn't seem like a normal photo opportunity, I think that that's very important.
0: Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. I had um, Chloe from the Allen Rose Foundation um, that supports parents through miscarriage, stillbirth, loss in general. And she lost her daughter um, when Mm -hmm. she contracted listeria. And she said that there was a nurse who said exactly like that, do you want me to take your picture? And she was like... What? No, what yeah, what what do you mean? And she explained it just like that. And she said she could not be more grateful because she talks to other parents and their biggest regret is not having a picture taken. Cause in that moment you don't think of it, but having that to be able to look back on as a choice at least is is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, there is so much information <laughs> out there, as we know in sure. social media <laughs> about birth. And I talk a lot on this podcast about the polarization of birth education and trying really hard to find this middle ground. And that that's actually what first like attracted me to your page is the way that you speak about like birth, the birth process is so balanced. Um and we miss a lot of that in kind of either end of the spectrum when it comes to birth education. And so I'm wondering for you, how have you navigated that? How have you walked the line kind of between evidence-based information um, and also having, I think there's been a lot more pushback lately because of such high birth trauma rates. Um, And people are scared as they should be because a one in three statistic does not leave great probability for you to have a non-traumatic birth. And so people out of appropriate fear and concern, especially with our mortality rates are looking towards kind of like alternative options. And I think some of those spaces have become very extreme. So how do you navigate? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so whenever I first became a labor and delivery nurse, I had great labor and delivery experiences. I never had any, I don't have any trauma from either of my births. It went easy peasy lemon squeezy. And so when I became a labor and delivery nurse, I assumed that that's kind of like how it goes most of the time, you know, that like, if I was to get on social media, I would see that, you know, labor and delivery nurses and obstetricians and midwives, they're the heroes, right? Like we, we are with you and we help you and we save you and all this stuff. And after I became a labor and delivery nurse and was on TikTok, I was seeing, all these people who are having very traumatic experiences, maybe not medically, but like emotionally. And I was like, maybe we're not the heroes. Maybe sometimes we're the villains. And that is a very hard pill to swallow when I belong to the club, you know, (laughs) because I need to be able to accept accountability even if I'm not the one who they're talking about in this story, you know, mm. I need to recognize how my actions can impact someone. So I think that the, the barrier to having more medical providers take that stance is they don't want to put it on themselves, right? Like, well, I didn't do that. Don't get mad at me. Cause I didn't do that. And I think the perfect example of that is when I very first understood the Black maternal mortality crisis, and that was coming from a patient that I took care of. So in the emergency department, I knew nothing about maternal mortality rate. It wasn't in my wheelhouse. I I didn't need to know about it, Um, but I think that everybody should know about it now. But um, I was fresh off of orientation and my... One like really scary thing as a labor and delivery nurse is I know that labor and delivery is the most litigious area of nursing, right? Because you have 18 years to sue. So if you have something go wrong in your birth, you know, you could be, I, as a nurse could be called in to be deposed, you know, 12 years later. And I, I'm not going to remember what happened in that moment. Wait, is this a,
0: is this a your state thing? Cause this is not the case across
1: I think it's a my state thing.
0: Okay. I was going to say, I'm yeah. pretty sure like some states only have like a year or two from birth. Yeah.
1: No. With okay. where I work, it's 18 years. So, <laughs> okay. I know scary. nothing. I
0: know nothing yeah. about the law. So I don't know if I'm right, but I do yeah. know people have tried to sue past like a year or two around me and it's no go.
1: Not not happening. Yeah. And it's also a big thing because lawyers rarely want to take on a big hospital system because yep. it's it's likely to not ha- not work. Yes, yes, yes. So, but in orientation. That's all I heard is like, you better make sure your charting's up to point. You better make sure that you're, you know, making sure that your, your charting is exactly what you did. Make sure you remember stuff. So I was terrified of that. And what that caused was instead of me focusing on my patient a hundred percent, it was mainly like, my patient and the computer, my patient in mm-hmm. the computer, you know? So I would come in to meet my patient, say like, hi, my name is Jen. I'm going to be taking care of you today. And then turn to the computer and make sure that I'm documenting all the things, asking all the right admission questions, whatever. So I had a patient that was coming in for an induction and they had, um, they were there for like a medical induction first baby. And I said, Hey, my name is Jen Turn to the computer and I start asking her questions. And out of the corner of my eye, I just see her trembling, like shaking like a leaf. And keep in mind, I haven't even touched her yet. Like there, I have not done anything at all to her. And I stopped what I was doing and I turned toward her. I sat down and I said, you okay? Like, what's going on? And she had her grandma on speakerphone or on FaceTime. And her grandma said, don't you let that white nurse kill you? And I was like, Whoa, what is happening? And the patient turned to me shaking like a leaf and said, I'm just so afraid that you are going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And so I took a, a breath or two. Cause I'm like, does my reputation precede me? Like what, right. what's happening Yeah. What's happening here? And, um, she says, because of, uh, the racist beginnings of gynecology. And I was like, what are you talking about? Mm. You know, like I am embarrassed now to say I had no clue what she was talking about. So she begins to tell me how gynecology got its start and about how enslaved women would be experimented on. And that's how they learned a lot about the female body. And um, so going through that experience of listening to her and have a patient educate me on that was yes embarrassing but it caused me to kind of go on a like a learning mission like I wanted to learn more about this so um I learned about how gynecology got to start and I also learned about how the shadows of the beginnings are still evident today you know like I can see some of that and it caused me to Look for it, you know, like, where can I see this still being a thing today? So, um, but in order to do that, I had to separate my personal defensiveness from what she was saying, because if I, I could have easily said, well, I didn't, I'm not James Marion Sims. Like I Mm -hmm. didn't expect, why are you mad at me? Like, and what that would have done is the opposite of what she needed. Yeah. So I think that step one is that we all have to be able to separate the defensiveness from the problem. Like we all have to take an active stance against the problem. Um, and that way we won't have this like it's you, no, it's you, you know, like there's no we need to stop with the blame game and we need yeah. to all take accountability.
0: What a beautiful and un like that does not land on her to educate others. What a beautiful thing that she did for you and you being able, of course, to take that in, but really for her to spend that time with you. Because she also could have just been like, I'm just going to sort of stay in my my shell because I'm terrified. Yeah. And the, it's just a, a really beautiful story of connection and learning. And it sounds like that's really where you were catapulted into learning more about these not so great outcomes especially for black women
1: I'll never forget her and I'll be eternally grateful to her and I'm sure she has no idea Mm -hmm. the impact that she has had on my life and the lives of other people because her taking the time to educate me has in turn been able to allow me to educate other people so and I'll say this too and I hate that it is this way but there is a I feel like, in uh, let me try to figure out the best way to say this. The way that things are in this world, sometimes white nurses need to hear something from another white mm-hmm. nurse that they don't automatically get de- defensive. Like, we have to, as white nurses, take the accountability. And I don't feel like it should be the responsibility of black patients nope. to educate white doctors or nurses about these things. Um, and I want them absolutely to share their stories and, um, yeah. for us to hear them, but sometimes like there needs to be, uh, white nurses taking the accountability to educate other, other white nurses so that there's yeah. not like this, um, this defensiveness or like, <laughs> I wish it was different. And I wish that black women would be listened to more. And I Mm -hmm. wish that, uh, that, you know, every time a black woman says something that we're, we have our ears turned and we're, we're actively listening. It's not always that way. And I think that one of my goals in life is to turn the attitude of thinking about the black maternal mortality rate from like Defensiveness to acceptance of accountability—that's yeah. really what I want to do.
0: Yeah, there is so much defensiveness. Um, I think we have more providers understanding birth trauma, and yet there are just so many who don't, mm-hmm. um, and that leaves people again open to feeling traumatized and all of these things. What would you like recommend to patients who? Maybe they're coming across nurses or providers who are not super compassionate understanding trauma informed whatever it would be how what how do they navigate that?
1: I think that and this is just coming from somebody who lives and works in this arena you know yeah. i work with I work with all kinds of people who um, I could see is very defensive, and then I also work with people who would be very accepting to stuff. I think that um, nurses are much more likely to Uh, be receptive to hearing you and being empathetic with you if you if you automatically come out that we're on the same team you know because there are some times that patients come in saying like here's my birth I've had this before here's my birth plan if you don't follow it I'm going to sue you or like if you don't follow it I'm going to yeah I'm going to call the police on you or like they come in with like these are the laws and if you do this to me xyz i'm going to what that does is it doesn't create a collaborative experience where you can feel safe it is like this adversarial us against you that is not the way to have a a safe birthing environment because you're you know coming off across coming across threatening is not a great way to have somebody who really wants to spend time with you. you yeah. know? Um, yeah. And so I have a, I think that it's important for people to, instead of coming in with like a really specific birth plan, um, I talk about the importance of birth vibes like that. You know, it's very easy to come in and say, you know, I want this, I want this, I want this. And this is exactly how I've always planned it to be. And this is what I want. Very easy to, to do that. Um, but Birth is not anything that can be planned. And so sometimes when we're having to make those game day decisions of like, oh, it's not going to be this way. Now I have to like figure it out in the moment. That can be very scary. So one thing that can be planned is how you want to feel, how you want to be communicated with, how you want to feel empowered. So I have like a a template that I have um, called birth vibes. It has like birth plan and then like X out, it says vibes. (laughs) Um, where on it, instead of having like, Hey, I want to deliver my baby in this position. Like I only want to push in this position. Um, it, I have like, this is my name. What I go by. These are the important people in my life. Um, the most important, the most important thing for me today is this, um, these things are comforting to me, but these things are not. So for instance, like, I love it. If you rub my back do not touch my hair. Like those are, you know, we all have those quirks. And then over on the side, I have good vibes and bad vibes. So good vibes would be like, please warn me or help me to prepare. If you see something concerning, like I want to be informed, please give me time to process things that you're telling me and allow me the space to be able to make decisions for myself. Uh, please ask me before, uh, touching me. Um, bad vibes would be like, Hey, you know what? I really don't want like double cervical exams. If my water's broken, like I get that people need to learn, but you know, if my water's broken, like, please don't do that. Or um, please don't, you know, bring a bunch of people in here without um, in first introducing them to me, you know, those things are so much easier to plan than the experience itself. Um, so what I tell people is if you go in with a birth vibes plan, You could have medically a very, very traumatic experience, but still leave that experience feeling respected, empowered, informed, loved, cared for. Like you can still have all those things. Whereas if you go in with like, you know, I'm going to have a water birth and then you end up with like epidural vacuum extraction, emergency C-section, like those things are yes, going to be traumatic but it's not just that it's that the whole experience feels out of control to you, you know? So I think that changing our perception of planning birth from the physical act to the emotional space we're preparing can be huge in preventing birth trauma.
0: Yeah. It also stems from this idea that I talk about this piece all the time. Birth trauma is less about the mode of delivery and more about the way it was communicated and carried out.
1: Say it again. Um, amen, <laughs> hallelujah. Yes. <laughs>
0: And like some people will be like, well, what, what about you? It wasn't, but it, it was still the way my birth was carried out. It wasn't anyone's fault, but mm-hmm. the the carried out nature of like a perimortem C-section, no thanks. Like right. I wanted to be alive <laughs> yeah. during yeah. said birth. But But it is so much more about that. And even when you do have those really traumatic instances, when it is still communicated in a comforting way, in a way that makes sense, in a way that helps us process it, begin to process it in those moments, that does really help mitigate a lot of the trauma. It doesn't mean there'll be no trauma. It's not a foolproof plan, but so often we demonize like Mm C-sections. And then the problem with that becomes a lot of people require C-sections after birth trauma or think, I think maybe a planned C-section actually would be good, but then they hear like C-sections equal trauma. And that's just not true. It's often an emergency C-section and the way that it's communicated and carried out Mm -hmm. in those moments is really scary and not comforting.
1: Yeah. I had this conversation yesterday. One of my coworkers had a very traumatic preterm C-section where her baby was in. It was very traumatic to her, a very emergency situation. And she's trying to make that decision. Do I want to try to V-back or do I want to, you know, have a a plan to C-section? And what I think is not really, you know, a message that we hear, especially on social media is that a planned C-section can be healing, you so know, healing. Like, because it's planned. Like there's, that takes a lot of that like chaos out of it. Um, and I've had so many patients who've had an emergency C-section before they plan a C-section and they're coming in with all of the anxiety, expecting and anticipating the same feelings from before to be present here. And so when the, one of the first things that I say is this is going to be so different for you. <laughs> like I'm excited for you because this is going to feel so different. And every single time we have the conversation afterwards that like, I can't believe that I ha- had a pleasant, it's ex- like, this was great. I can't, I would, I would have six more babies if, if it was like this, because it's so much smoother and, you know, less chaos and quieter. And, you know, there's time to explain things and talk about things where, you know, this is not demonizing VBAC by any means, because VBACs can also be very, very healing. healing. Yep. Um, but, you know, When you're going in for a VBAC, we call that a TOLAC, which is a trial of labor after cesarean. Um, You know, there's still that unknown of like, I really hope that I get this VBAC, you know, but it still could end up in a C-section. So, you know, sometimes people go for a VBAC wanting that healing experience and then ended up in another either emergency C-section or whatever. And then there's that grief and loss. It is so individual to the person on what they need to feel like that they can have a healing experience because I had a patient a few weeks ago that just wanted to try everything to get that V back. And if she didn't get it, she would feel a healing experience in that knowing that she did everything that she could to get that V back. So I talked about it this morning on TikTok that birth is going to be as individual as you are. Like everyone is going to experience things differently. There are people who need epidurals to survive and that would be me. I am in that club, Um, but there are people that, you know, can cope with the labor pains just fine. And they have a wonderful birth experience because they didn't get an epidural. So I hesitate to ever tell anyone what birth is going to be like for them or what they're going to feel or what they're going to experience, because it's going to be different for everybody in the same way. The way that we heal from birth trauma is going to be so individualized. Yes, that is
0: better than I could ever say it. It is, it is going to be very individualized. And some will not be able to go on to have more children. Some will choose not to because it was so traumatic yeah. and they just don't want to go through that again. And they can heal too. Um, I think we get really stuck in um needing another birth experience. Mm-hmm. Um, And if you want another birth experience, that is great too. And it will not replace, unfortunately, the trauma. So when we talk about it being healing, it is. It's healing in its own right, and your your past experience still exists. Um, and exactly. I think that kicks people in the face sometimes because they don't anticipate the grief that comes up when they have a beautiful, normal, quote unquote, non-traumatic experience. How different that feels than their past
1: experience. Exactly. It never erases what you've been through. Um, it only provides you with a new experience yes so. yeah
0: well Jen, i don't want to take up any more of your time but this has been incredible um i can't thank you enough for coming on and really for just all of the free education you put out there and all of the misinformation you are constantly um fighting back against in in the name of supporting all of your patients who might not even be your actual patients but definitely wish that they were and they are well, learning from you that. every day yeah.
1: thank you so much i'm so excited that we finally got to meet kind of in person and i'm glad that we are buddies yes it's the best thanks again jen
0: If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and please leave us a review so that other people can find this podcast and hopefully get the support and the validation that they're looking for.